Just a quick forward to this episode. We taped it many months ago, and the Wi-Fi connection made it almost impossible for Dr. Damasio to hear anything I was saying. It's like reading tea leaves or interpreting abstract art. He answers the gist of the signal he's getting through the noise, and everything he says, it seems to me, is well worth sharing in spite of, or maybe partly because of, all the interference. Also, separately, those of you paying extra close attention might have noticed that there wasn't a show last week. I was away in Italy and Turkey, but I'm back now in the humidity of New York in August, and I've brought back some goodies with me from those travels that I'll be sharing with you soon. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Quick question, answer without thinking too hard. Ready? Where is your mind? What is your mind? Okay, raise your hand if you thought of your brain. If you did, you're in very good company. For centuries, Western science, culture, and language has been obsessed with the head as the center of thought and the body as the center of feeling. This split can get hierarchical, attaching ideas like sin to the body and the emotions while putting the brain along with rationality up on a pedestal. I'm very happy to be speaking again today with neuroscientist and philosopher Antonio Damasio, who has done more than anyone else I know of to get that brain down off its high horse and reattach it to the body. We last talked a year ago about his book, The Strange Order of Things, Life, Feeling, and the Making of Cultures, which has now come out in paperback. It turns everything upside down, not only re-anchoring mind and body, but finding in primitive bacteria and social insects patterns that help explain human culture. Maybe there's more going on in the Mona Lisa than in a bacterial colony, but they also have quite a lot in common. Welcome to Think Again, Antonio. My pleasure. We last spoke in April of last year, and I'm wondering how your work and how the thinking and conversations around the book have evolved since then. Well, it's been very interesting. Uh, I was, um, as I probably told you uh, before, I was expecting that people would react somewhat negatively to to this emphasis on simple organisms capable of behaviors and um, arrangements that had such a strong social shape. But contrary to that, people were actually very welcoming, both colleagues and people that read the book and were not even specialists. So I, I was very happy to have that good reception for a set of ideas that I was uh, concerned would be uh, either misconstructed or, or poorly received. I think that ever since we last spoke, the data have been coming in in support of those ideas. It's a little bit stupid to be doing this self-praise, but, but <laughs> I think that the ideas are, are uh, fundamentally correct. And there's one part of these ideas that interests me very much. And that has to do with the fact that prior to that great pedestal that you were talking about where people put the brain, usually, I don't really want to take it off the pedestal completely because without the brain, uh, of course, we're not going to have the creativity we do have. We're not going sure. to be human the way we are. And we're not even going to be able to do this conversation uh, that we're having right now with all of this new technology, uh, which, by the way, is not working very well today. But that's, okay. <laughs> uh, that's right. But the point is that we need to recognize that brains appear very late 
in the history of evolution, in the history of life. Uh, so we go most of the history of life without any brains whatsoever, without nervous systems even, uh, and it's only in the last tier of that period of life on Earth that we do develop first very simple nerve nets, then more complex nervous systems, and eventually brains like our brains. And the amazing thing is that throughout that long, long period of life, we encounter much simpler organisms than we are, but those simpler organisms are capable of enormously complex behavior. They are capable of making choices that they are not, of course, making uh, deliberately, intentionally, but they are making choices between good things or bad things for their life. They are grouping together to, for example, explore uh, territory and find uh, nutrients that are important for the continuation of their life, or they are banding together and literally attacking others in order to gain territory if that territory is convenient. So right. you have a collection of behaviors that is extremely complex, that indicates intelligence in the broad sense of the term intelligence. They're being very smart about what they do. And the other thing that is fascinating is that all those smarts, all that intelligence is being applied to one thing only, to their life. It's being applied with the purpose of maintaining the life that an organism has and extending it for as long as, of course, your genome allows it to be, to have it extended. And this is really fascinating because it's sort of literally, I'm glad you, you said it, it turns things upside down. That's why I, I think this strange order to these things is still a good descriptor. We have reasons why we do things, we have reasons why organisms behave in a certain way, and we are in the same boat as they are. We all, as living organisms, want to preserve life, want to do everything possible to have good governance of life, the set of regulations we call homeostasis. And the big difference ends up being the following. In creatures that did not have nervous systems and do not have nervous systems, uh, which, as we said, occupy most of the history of life, in those creatures, the decisions are not being made intentionally. They're not being made by a mind that happens to be conscious right. and that is reasoning as to what should be done next. On the contrary, those decisions are being made, one could say, automatically by the organism, but not in a thinking, rational way. They are there, they, they sort of uh, float up in the behavior, and the behavior ends up being intelligent, but no one was thinking about, I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that. Whereas in humans, and of course in many other species in between, we have ascended to this great 
possibility called mind and even to a greater possibility which is a mind with consciousness and we have done so and we have of course the possibility of making decisions that are now informed by knowledge decisions that are informed by what we know about what is good or what is bad but mind you continue to be related to this imperative which is the homeostatic imperative. What we want is for life to continue. Right. And uh, we, even if we didn't want it, that's what we're going to end up doing with our minds and with our consciousness. And just one more point, Jason. This all happens courtesy of the development of nervous systems. In other words, prior to nervous systems, no mind, no consciousness, no intention in the full sense of the term. After nervous systems, gradually we ascend to this possibility of having minds, having consciousness, having knowledge, and then having reasoning that allows us to arrive at some of these very interesting decisions. One thing that I was thinking about as I was revisiting the ideas in your book is that when we get to the level of culture. When we're looking at smaller organisms and we're, we're even looking at a whole human body or animal body, it's easy to see how the homeostatic imperative is operating. You can see, see the organism seeking its own continuance. When you get to the level of culture, the actors that are acting homeostatically, they become nations, they become ideas themselves. It becomes a, a very complicated mixture of different homeostatic imperatives where it becomes very, very complicated and difficult to trace what is continuing itself and why. I entirely agree with that. So we have culture in all the paraphernalia of our cognitive ability act as masks right. over the real stuff. The real stuff is life and its imperatives and uh, we mask all this. I mean, when people are uh, happily or unhappily pursuing money, they don't realize that they are pursuing sources of energy and that that desire is in fact necessary in given the structure of their minds because behind it is the goal of attaining energy that is enough to maintain life, but also in that process to attain pleasure because pleasure by itself is a way of increasing the power of survival you know mm. the, the, the there's some good reason why why we have such things as pleasures some, something as desires and why there is also something called pain and suffering and all of those uh, states of emotion and feeling are states that portray the condition of life in a given organism. When you have pain, you are already at risk of losing that life, certainly of losing homeostasis, and it's there as a very powerful signal that is a harbinger of bad things to come unless you do something about it. The same thing with states of malaise and so forth. And likewise, when, when you are in states of joy and pleasure, your mind is telling you through that feeling that you experience that guess what? homeostasis is working very well and the conditions right. are such that they are conducive 
to maintaining life in optimal or near optimal way. And so there, there are all of these new powerful tools that allow us to guide our behavior so that we maintain uh, life in the best possible way. And yet at the same time, the signals can mislead us. I mean, especially at the cultural level, we pursue things, we can pursue things that aren't necessarily good for us exactly. on the basis of pleasure and so on. Exactly. So it's very interesting because pleasure actually more so than pain and all the prospects of pleasure are very bad advisors. Uh, and mm -hmm. in some conditions, they are good advisors, but in some conditions, they can fool us. And of course, when you think about the, the fragility of uh, human reasoning and the way in which human reason can be twisted in every possible way uh, by bad advisors, you can see how this is true. In a way, with simple organisms, I think the possibility of deception and the possibility of misguided behaviors is far smaller. We have this huge amount of riches mentally, this huge amount of possibilities that if you are extremely wise and thoughtful mm -hmm. about what you entertain as your wishes and how you go about pursuing them, then you may be in luck. But a lot of us, a lot of the time, are just being complete fools. And we are being fooled by this incredibly rich machinery. But in the end, the general shape of the machinery and the goals, the fundamental parameters remain the same. It's just they're dressed in a different way. In general, I'm hearing and I'm reading more about the mind-body connection, about the central nervous system's role. I spoke with Barbara Tversky the other day about motion and how that shapes some of the fundamental mapping of the mind and the way that we think about the world. So I, I feel like maybe more than when, much more than when you started this work, there is openness in the scientific community to that, to the anchoring of, or the connection of mind and body, or the, I don't even want to say connection, the unity, in a sense, of, of mind and body. What feels very new here is this broader connection between the patterns that are happening even at the cellular level and the patterns that are happening at the cultural level. That, that seems like that's the part that I would have, like you, thought the community might have had a harder time swallowing. Jason, I'm going to, this is a guessing game. I'm going to guess what your question or your comment was. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, because I'm, we're losing more than 50% of what you say. What I guessed you were saying is that there is now a greater awareness of the similarity of some forms and the similarity of some behaviors and the fact that they are, that certain goals and forms of behavior are actually of the same kind throughout the life that we can observe on Earth, where, whether it is in a simple organism or a very complex one. And I think you're absolutely right. To me, what is so attractive in this idea is the fact that the pattern is the same, and the pattern is just being repeated, but repeated with huge riches, with huge uh, developments in terms of the capacity to operate 
on reality. And, and of course, once you have the possibility of having cognition, and once you join cognition and feeling, the sky's the limit. You, you really can get to points that could never have been imagined if you were just looking at bacteria, or for that matter, even complex organisms, relatively complex organisms like social insects. In my introduction, I was talking about you taking the brain down off of its pedestal. And what I was referring to really was the kind of reconnecting of the mind and the body, which it seems to me has been a project that you and others have been working on for some time now. But I think, I feel like there's a temptation when we, when we start to understand how much of the mind is anchored in the body and in the central nervous system, there's a temptation for the pendulum to swing the other way and say, look, we've been much overemphasizing the brain. That's not what you're saying yeah. at all. No, 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 not at all. If you realize how much the pendulum was in the other direction, then you realize that it's good to have a little bit of correction, but let's not overcorrect. So when I was in medical school and I, when I was working on my doctoral thesis, all that we talked about in relation to mind was the brain, was nervous system. There was absolutely no understanding that there was a connection to the rest of an organism. So the, the pendulum was right. clearly at an extreme. And by the way, a lot of the, what I would call the excesses of artificial intelligence came by way of that. It came from a period in the history of the sciences in which people said, ah, oh, well, you know, once brains exist, brains really carry all of these complex functions, and there's a complete neglect of where biologically that brain was inserted. And th this mm. has been a, a big problem. And by the way, it's accompanied by the problem of the neglect of emotion and feeling, which curiously is the province of the body. In other words, you cannot have emotions without having a body emoting, and you cannot have feelings without getting a purchase, without getting a perception of what is changing in your body at a given moment as a result of either an emotion or as a result of life regulation. So all of these things were curiously together during a certain period. I don't think the yeah. pendulum has gone the other way at all because a very large number of people are not even aware that there are these new developments, although more and more people are so. But I think that I don't want to lose that uh, equilibrium uh, because, in fact, the way to tell the story is this. Brains exist or have existed in the history of life to complement the job that bodies were doing in being the caretakers of life within that same body. Uh, brains come out of very interesting changes that occur in organisms, that occur at chemical level, at the level of organelles, and then you have this development of uh, nerve nets and eventually synapses with a number of chemical mediators. All of this emerges from the same fundamental soup. But then we have to realize is that when we come to the great 
flights of fancy that we have as uh, human beings in, in the middle of social behavior or when we invent the verse uh, of a person like Shakespeare or, for that matter, Emily Dickinson. Mm-hmm. When you come to that, of course you cannot do that with bodies alone. You do that with highly refined nervous systems, highly refined brains that have given us nothing but wealth in terms of human life and in terms of the human cultural life. I'm happy to call attention to what came before, but I don't want to minimize at all what nervous systems and human brain in particular is capable of doing. I feel like that separation, the separation of the rational mind and emotion has been one of the most destructive paths that we went down scientifically and culturally for a very long time, leading to also very broad gender-based discrimination and all kinds of other problems. The idea that somehow women were emotional, men were rational. Of course, yeah. The consequences culturally of that split are amazing. And you know they appear at all levels culturally, even in the way societies are run in general. The idea that you make decisions that have to do with war or the the life of other people on the basis of rationality alone, without having the aspects that have to do with human suffering and human flourishing, which are truly, completely related to the world of feeling. That, of course, has taken us towards very, very bad paths, which is something I'm glad you brought that up because we're going through a sort of both good period and bad period. Good in the sense that there's an awareness of all these things, but at the same time bad because we are once again confronting social and political problems that some of us who are older thought had been resolved a few decades ago, but they have not. We are uniquely able to come up with cures for disease, extraordinary art, and so on. And we are also uniquely able to come up with flights of fancy that are absolute dangerous nonsense. And the same mechanism supports both. Yeah, exactly. That's why this whole thing is so fragile, and we have to pay attention to that too. But you know, even that is funny, because it's the fragility of life itself. We are fragile culturally and socially, but life is very fragile to begin with. And it's it's quite amazing when you think about how easy it is for a life to disappear. We were so used to the fact that we We sort of maintain life reasonably well. Uh, We have a few meals a day, we sleep, we we maintain the environment. But all that it takes is a little bit of bad luck in the management of those supports uh, and you're cooked. Uh, and uh, you, you can actually be cooked with, with global uh, warming. The same thing with vulnerability to, to diseases. Here we are sort of congratulating ourselves on having eradicated polio uh, and a number of infectious diseases like, for example, measles, and uh, lo- look at where we are right now. Uh, compounded with our international travel, we have, unless we are very observant, we could have a return of some of those 
diseases. When I think of viral diseases in particular, I think of uh, Jonas Salk, who actually was the single person who was able to eradicate a disease from the face of the earth, in this case, of course, polio, which is no longer the case. You know, we're going to have more cases of polio. And all of this just means that we have to be very alert because we, we have to celebrate all of these incredible successes you know fundamentally we humans are very successful and life can be absolutely marvelous but we have to watch out for all of these dangers that lurk and that are extremely easy to fall into i think that the vaccine situation and the return of diseases that we thought had been eradicated which right now is big news in new york especially but but everywhere is a very interesting intersection of these things because what you have is humans eradicated these diseases we created these vaccines we also created massive gigantic economies and things like giant pharmaceutical companies, which have profit motives, which they can abuse, which causes distrust of the giant pharmaceutical companies, which causes misguided nonsense, like the belief that vaccines might be harming you. So you have all of these instances of overlapping homeostatic imperatives creating noise in the system. The imperative of big pharma to perpetuate itself, the imperative of humans to eradicate disease. And at the same time, the, the misguided idea that by having vaccines, you could promote disease, in which case you sort of reasonably but unreasonably do not want to have vaccines. So it's all it's all uh, very complicated. But um, but it's not impossible to manage. I think we, we have survived worse things. We probably can survive this one. This is as good a place as any to go to the second part of the show, where we're going to watch surprise clips from Big Things Archives. This one is from primatologist Franz DeWall, and it's about animal consciousness. My cynical reaction to questions about consciousness is You tell me what it is, and I tell you if an elephant has it. And that usually shuts people up because you will not be able to tell me what it is and how I should measure it. That is really not a good reaction because I actually believe that animals have some level of consciousness. And so, for example, the approach that I sometimes take is that there are certain things that we humans cannot do without consciousness. If we find these kind of actions also in other species, we must assume that they also involve consciousness. So, for example, you cannot plan a party for tomorrow for your friends without consciously thinking about how much beer you need, what kind of music you're going to play, who's going to be invited. And you have to consciously think about the event before you can plan it. Now, we have very good evidence that animals can plan. We have lots of experiments now on it, and we have nature observations. For example, chimpanzees will collect tools uh, on one location and then walk for for three miles. And so then an hour later, they're going to use these tools to fish for termites or to open a beehive, meaning that they probably had been planning the action. And, And we test that out in the laboratory. And we have evidence for planning in birds. We have planning in in apes. So if they can plan and we plan consciously, it's very hard to imagine that they can do these same things that we do unconsciously. I find that hard to imagine. We have other things like 
thinking back in time, thinking back to events that happened like a year ago. Can you do that? We have, we have now ways of testing that. It's called episodic memory in animals, and animals have that capacity. You cannot think back to a specific event in time, like your, let's say, your wedding or whatever it is. You cannot think back to a specific event without consciously thinking about that. And so there are certain things that animals do and that we have now evidence for that require in humans consciousness. Uh, and, and I think that's a good indicator that the animals must also have that kind of consciousness. Well, uh, my thoughts go immediately to the fact that I entirely agree with him from beginning to end. <laughs> I think that uh, he, he has actually produced a good number of experiments in animals that entirely favor, I could even say further, demonstrate that animals, of course, have minds and have minds that are conscious. And the, uh, depending, of course, on what kind of animal we're thinking of, if you're thinking about elephants or big apes, their consciousness is going to be extremely comparable to ours in many, many ways. Uh, of course, right. the fact that they do not have language reduces the scope of the, the phenomenon in part, but the essence is the same. And the essence is that those animals have a sense of, first of all, they have a mind that is enriched by images of every sort of sensory stripe. In other words, their visual images and auditory and tactile and images of their interior, the kinds of images that are present in feeling states, for example. But in addition, right. they have a sense that these, this flow of imagery that we call mind is happening inside of them and to themselves. So there is a locus where these events are taking place and the same way that you or I know that we are that locus. We, when we have a, a mind, you know, right now I have, uh, I'm thinking, for example, of where you are and the difficulties we had mm -hmm. with, the, with the video and the audio. Uh, and I'm <laughs> thinking about the fact that I'm, I'm in a conference room in my institute and that the person who works with you is holding a microphone in front of me and so forth. All of this this incredibly complex texture of imagery is happening to me. It's not that I think, hmm, interesting, there are all of these images coming by, uh, where are they and who do they belong to? No, I have the automatic right. knowledge that they're mine and that's because they are happening within a locus and that locus is myself, is myself, is my body. And actually here, the two things, body and mind, quote unquote, converge in body and brain, uh, in the sense that the body is absolutely critical to define that location. If it weren't for the fact that we have a skeletal frame and have a muscular frame and have an organism that is contained within that mass of bone and muscle, we would not have the possibility of knowing that there is a place where the process of mind is occurring. So there, right. the body contributions and the brain contributions fuse in a very advantageous way for us. So this is what your video provoked in me. 
So first there is the mapping of the there is the mapping of the body, the sense whether or not you have the word for self, the sense that this thing is mine and that there's there are other things which are outside of this. And then Correct. and then the mapping of that into a kind of extended self, which has to do with the things in the world that also belong to you or relate to you in one way or another. That's right. sort of the origin of self. Exactly, yeah. And, and of course, it's quite clear that in animals, the sophistication of the process has got to be somewhat limited compared to ours. But even so, right. it can be incredibly rich. We, we have this bad habit of thinking that creatures that are not human are, if not stupid, just passive and docile and with, without too much of a mind. <laughs> right. And, and this, is a, this is absolutely preposterous because, first of all, we have examples around us of dogs and cats that are capable of uh, things that are, they are so similar to what we do in many circumstances. But it's not only that. I mean, if you go to, you know, sheep is a very interesting example. Sheep are considered okay. extremely simple and docile, and, but they are incredibly intelligent animals. They have a level of face recognition that is in many cases comparable to ours. They mm. obviously have, have a sense of self, and they, they are very clever at solving all sorts of problems. And on top of it all, they give you milk and wool. Come on. So they're far better and more useful than many of us. Babies, human babies and very, very small children, you know, are also limited and more limited than, than many animals. We wouldn't right. begin to think of treating them in that way. We wouldn't begin to make that separation. And there, there are all sorts of curious cultural origins to that. But I think it's very important that people change their minds about this. And by the way, it will have very important consequences for the way we treat animals in general, which is you know, quite bizarre. Do you think that the neuroscience that has been grounded primarily in human neuroanatomy is going to be looking more and more to animal neuroscience and, and trying to understand the minds of animals, whereas maybe previously there was a hard and fast division between the scientists who looked at animals and those who did not? Oh, I think there's more and more of a, of a continuity and fusion. It's inevitable. For example, there's a very interesting journal called Animal Sentience that I recommend uh. to you because it's devoted to high-level scientific material on animals. And uh, it can be fish oh, that sounds great. Uh, or it can be sheep, but it will give people a sense of how rich these minds are and how intelligent behaviors are coming from creatures that are, of course, quite different from ours. It, of course, calls attention to the enormous similarity of planning of the nervous system itself. You see, when you look at the nervous system of not just a monkey or a dog or a sheep or even a fish, you find the general construction plan is extremely similar to ours. What constitutes a right. peripheral nervous system and the central nervous system. Then you look at the central nervous system and the arrangement of things like spinal cord and brain stem and basal nuclei 
is again extremely similar. The shapes are even very, very reminiscent of each other. Of course, there are two big differences. One is size, because big creatures have much larger nervous systems with many more cells and with richer circuitries. And then the circuitry of the cerebral cortex, which is, of course, the, the cortex that is responsible for a good part of our most important uh, cognitive achievements uh, and that allows us to have large memory storage and manipulation of memories and and fine perception and imagination and of course the combination of all of that with feelings that are also re-represented at cerebral cortex level and of course gives you language to allow for this conversation that we're having right now. So all of that is in fact this enormous richness of the human nervous system but it doesn't mean that other nervous systems are not very complex and rich as well. I think that where that leaves us is that the exceptional nature of the human mind doesn't necessarily have to smuggle in a hierarchy that blinds us to the wonders of other organisms. Exactly. I think you put it very rightly. And it's, it's interesting because that's exactly the same position that you and I were taking in relation to uh, brain versus body. Uh, you know, the, right. just the fact that you recognize the other side doesn't mean that we're going to minimize where we're coming from. Thanks for listening. The fall recording calendar is coming together and with it, my fall reading list and things are heading in strange and beautiful new directions. Stick with us. Although I refuse to chart a definite course, we're going places together. If you want to get in touch, find me at jasongots.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-G-O-T-S dot com. You can email me or join my mailing list there for occasional updates. I'll be back next week with something surprising, and I hope you can join me.